This is your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duchet. Thank you for listening to another episode of What is Black Podcast. I'm so excited to share our interview today with special guest, Victoria Bond. We'll get an opportunity to talk about her new, her new book, Zora Me the Summoner. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And to just let everyone know, this is the last episode of season two, the last episode of 2020. We've had quite a year, but I'm so excited about all the great guests that have um, taken their time to spend with us so that we can learn more about their work and learn more about how we as parents can help support and raise healthy and thriving black children and teens. I'm so looking forward to planning for the upcoming third season and I'll share more information in the weeks to come. But I did want to take the ch- take the time to thank you so much for spreading the word about the podcast. Welcome, Victoria. It is such a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, thank you, Jackie. It's great to be here. So as we were talking before the interview, your book, I think is, you know, we talked about the timeliness of many of the stories that are coming out today especially your new book, which is part of a part of a trilogy. So your new book is Zora and Me, The Summoner. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the previous two books and how they they culminate into this new book, Zora and Me, The Summoner. Sure. Zora and Me, the trilogy is inspired by the childhood of the Harlem Renaissance woman, the anthropologist and novelist, Zora Neale Hurston. And Zora was from Eatonville, Florida, which was one of the first all-Black incorporated towns in the United States. So our series, which was co-created with T.R. Simon, is really about a Black community both growing and struggling with white supremacy and racial hostilities at the beginning of the 20th century. And each of the novels is about those racial hostilities. So the first one is a kind of monster story, but it's also a whodunit. And the whodunit is who killed the traveling musician, who murdered him. Was it a monster or was it a human being, right? The second book is actually a ghost story about the sins of slavery. And the second book, The Cursed Ground, really opens up to the reader the the history of the land that Eatonville was built on. And then the third book, the third book is a zombie story that explains why it is that Zora Neale Hurston ends up leaving her cherished home. And it ends up being a grave robbery and an election (laughs) that together, you know, push Zora out into the world. So in these books, we're using Zora as a, a young protagonist, as a child, and we're exploring these racial historical incidences through her eyes and the eyes of her community. So again, you know, as we were talking um, pre-interview, you know, I think you, you stated it so well, the relevance of, you know, your work, the writing for this time. And I think the one thing that I, I find I find so amazing about um, authors, especially authors for young children, is how, especially historical fiction writers, right? How do you how you are able to bridge right that history, but 
but also make it make it relevant to um, the themes that are going on um, in current times, especially, you know, the issues that are going on now regarding social justice, racial justice. And I wanted to get your thoughts about um, how how do you think about that process as you're writing? And is that intentional in terms of, you know, making sure that you make that bridge um, to to help help kids understand what's going on today? You know, it is intentional. I think that for me, this book, the summoner started at least with me processing the murder of Trayvon Martin and then the murder of Tamir Rice and then the murder of Eric Garner. Um, those events, those horrific events were the ones that I had in my mind as I was trying to process the ongoing violence, both state-sponsored and otherwise, that Black bodies face. So in my processing of that, I decided to open the novel, The Summoner, with a, a mob or a militia chasing a Black man who had escaped a chain gang in order to both inform and draw connections for readers between the kinds of incidences that we hear about on the news, the kinds of incidences that have families out on the streets protesting, and also the kinds of incidences that we don't often understand the historical precedent for. So I think it's a really kind of a frightening thing for me. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, again, was an anthropologist, that's not the frightening thing, but the frightening thing is that she begins one of her anthropological studies on folklore in Florida with this little song about white militiamen going around the state looking for black people to murder. So this was something that she was exploring and documenting in her own work. This was something that she lived. This is something, unfortunately, that we still are contending with. And I personally think that it's gaslighting kids to make stories that don't try to acknowledge and cope and figure out these kinds of histories and these incidences. Because the point, for me at least, as a kid reading, and of course now still as an adult reading, I'm, I'm looking for answers, right? I'm looking to understand why the world is the way it is. And as a writer, I feel like that's my number one aim, especially for young readers, to try to give them some historical context so they can understand why things are this way and hopefully of course have a vision for how to make things better going forward. And I think that's wonderful. And I think the other thing that I really, you know, you kind of you have like this this duality right I think in terms of writing. Right? So this is and historic your book is historical fiction, but you sort of also have roots in in poetry. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so I think what's so I had an opportunity to I've interviewed a few few poets for, that are that also write fiction or novels in verse, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing I always find so amazing is that it seems I, I feel like in, in some ways, like maybe I need to, you know, I I write right, but I'm thinking, well, maybe I should have become a poet too because I find like the poets, right, who start out writing, you know, you 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 have like a root roots in poetry and then then branch out to other genres of writing, like that's to me like to me that's like the crown, right? It's like 
that's that's the holy grail of writing. And I just wanted to get your thoughts a little bit about how your your work in poetry also informs your writing other genres, including historical fiction and other works you may be you may be pursuing as well. Well, I think poetry for me personally as a kid really taught me how to both read and write. Um, Some of the earliest books that I read were Harlem Renaissance poetry anthologies. So my kind of my introduction to literature, my introduction to literature by Black people, and my introduction to the, the history of our literature in the United States really was formed through my meeting poets like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Georgia Douglas Johnson and Langston Hughes and County Cullen. And what that reading taught me was to pay attention to words as a writer. So in my earliest writings as a poet, I I wasn't really thinking about stories as much as I was thinking about what words sound good together right? And how those words then look on a page, because I was fascinated as a child with how few words could be in a line of poetry. I especially loved haikus. And then I think I was also fascinated by the message of a poem, whether it's explicit or implicit. So there was this just this fascination with words and how they look and how they sound. And then there was like this very kind of concrete message that a poem delivers its reader, which is kind of unlike what you get reading a novel. So I think as a poet with someone with that hit that background, it really allows you just to kind of dig into the fundamentals that as I grew older, I learned how to explore at greater length. But I don't think that I would be a writer today if I hadn't first been introduced to poetry. Okay, so I need to go back and read some poetry. Um, I mean, because... I- I mean, that's the thing. I mean, because I think either it, I think it really depends on your, you know, who who are your influences, right? So, you know, growing up, you know, my dad made me read. You know, both my brother and I had to read, and we probably read poetry, but I didn't get it, right? So I, mm-hmm. so I think the more the older I'm getting, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had only paid a little bit more attention, or maybe maybe really would would have been the books, right, that I was able to read in school. Right. So, and so kind of like to, to kind of loop back to this discussion about the importance of the types of books kids have access to in school. Right. And that's really, I think one of my, my passions with this, you know, this talking about books for kids podcast or my other podcast on what is black is that, you know, there are there, there are not a lot of opportunities in many school districts, right. For kids to have, have literature outside of the quote unquote um, white canon of literature, right? These these classical writings. And I think, you know, your, your exposure to, to poetry, was that, was that your, from school, your early exposure to poetry or family, family influence, parents or grandparents? Right. I think that's the important thing to note. None of this exposure came from school. (laughs) This was all at home. And I was raised by my grandparents. And the reason why I have these poetry anthologies is because my grandmother worked at the library. 
and the library discarded them, threw them out, and my grandmother brought them home, right? So this is, so just in that little tidbit, we get a lot about inequities, right? So the foundation of my professional career is nothing I ever was taught in school. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, those books were taken out of the hands of the community because the library deemed them, you know, not worthy enough to be on a shelf. So I just happened to have a grandmother who worked at the library that thought, oh, these books would be interesting to my one granddaughter, right? So instead of those books being accessible to the community, now they're only accessible to one kid or they're in the garbage. So I think that this is something that I really think a lot about as a parent. You know, what can I be doing in my home, not to kind of shove stuff, you know, on my kid, but just to make things accessible to him that may open doors for him if he so chooses. You know, because I think another funny thing about this story is that my grandmother never said, let's sit down and read these books. She just said, here are some books. And, you know, you get bored enough in a world without cell phones, without cable. (laughs) And you're like, oh, grandma brought home these books. Let me open one because there is nothing to do because we only have four channels and it's only like talk shows on them. So I'm going to sit down and look at these books. So, you know, I think that, again, the fact that none of that came into my life through school really gives us a sense of what schools didn't do then that hopefully more schools are doing now. I I hope so. I hope that again given this this time that we're in now, right? There's going to be there's going to be a need for um understanding right a context for why um there are protests, why there is call for racial justice and social justice. And I think books do a, do a wonderful job of doing that. So I want, again, just want to circle back a little bit about, you know, that, that, that idea that, you know, your grandmother, you know, basically saved these books from, you know, being in the trash. And I was doing a little bit of background reading about Zora Neale Hurston. And I kind of, again, I find like this through line, right? So it's almost kind of like the, the, the writers that are writing about Zora Neale Hurston, there's some, there's some, some cosmic connection somewhere. Right. And, and so I'm saying all this to say that when I read about Zora Neale Hurston, she was not, she was not celebrated or my understanding was she was not celebrated, you know, during the time that she was alive. Right. And it was until much later that people sort of kind of rescued and, and re- revitalized, right. Or, or remembered who she was and the importance that she played, the important role that she played. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in your research regarding Zora Neale Hurston. Um, if that really was the case, because I mean, I, I'm, I haven't done the research on Zora Neale Hurston, so but that was that was my understanding of her work. Like she really wasn't known during, you know, amongst her colleagues, yes, but not from the not from the um, broader um, broader community. Um, Yeah, I think that that's one of the most fascinating things about Zora Neale Hurston is that, well, once she leaves Eatonville in 1904, 1905, and she's sent to a boarding school after her mother's death. And her father, who she has a very difficult relationship with, doesn't pay her boarding school bill. So 
at that point, Zora is basically a teenage girl out in the world on her own. And for a period of years, about a decade, there is very little known about her life. And she shows back up in 1916, 1917, in the Washington, D.C. area, where she enrolls in high school and she lies and says that she is 16 as opposed to 26. (laughs) So she can re-enter school. Right. So from that point, she goes to Howard, then she transfers to Barnard and she begins what for a period is a really illustrious career as a novelist and an anthropologist. Now, this is completely unheard of to be a black person and embark on this kind of professional journey, to be a woman and embark on this kind of professional journey and yet to be a black woman writing novels and doing anthropological studies and writing anthropological books in the early to mid 20th century is a really huge accomplishment. Now, because Zora was so iconoclastic, because she really did own herself and was her own person, she had a very different approach to her anthropology and she had a very different approach to the kinds of novels that she wrote and wanted to write. And because she explored Black life apart from the racism that Black people experienced, because she documented Black stories, Black folklore, a lot of her Black contemporaries at the time were like, Zora, like, you know, we need to be focused almost solely on racism. Zora, you wrote your novel about a young black woman's sexual awakening. We're not going to touch that right now. Zora, you have these ideas about, you know, black schools that no one wants to hear because the progressive position is desegregation. So because Zora was so different from almost everybody, (laughs) both her black and white peers, she becomes an outlier and eventually a pariah. Now, in the early 1970s, Alice Walker, I think, really does resurrect Zora Neale Hurston's legacy and work on the basis of a a feminist platform, right? Zora is this woman that wrote about women, that wrote about Black people with great joy, with great pride, with great expertise. And in part, she falls out of the mainstream in the 1940s and the 1950s because she did that kind of work. And it's that work that brings her back in the 1970s through the wonderful Alice Walker. So, you know, one way I think about this is if we didn't have Alice Walker, we wouldn't have Zora Neale Hurston. If we didn't have Zora Neale Hurston, we wouldn't have had Alice Walker, right? And if we don't have them, then there are a lot of people writing today, you know, just like me, for example, that might not have written this book or any other books, frankly, you know, so as a black woman 
I think we are especially beholden to our ancestors and those who come before us because they literally pave our paths, both in the kind of the literal work that I've done writing these novels about Zora, but just the fact that I'm a Black woman who felt free enough to be able to learn how to write and to try to publish a book. Oh, man, I got goosebumps you saying that, right? Because... I mean, it's this legacy of ancestors, right? It's a legacy of those who have come before us, like you said, that have really paid and paved the way for us moving forward. And what I what I find also so fascinating in your recounting of Zora's life and her connection to Alice Alice Walker was a sense that she was a woman ahead of her time, mm-hmm. right? And and many of the issues that she talks about. And are still so relevant today. So, so this is my segue into the question of, from what you know of Zora Neale Hurston, what do you think her thoughts would be about today, the, the things that are going on today? Oh, well, I think Zora would be really proud of the progress that has been made. But I think Zora would not be shocked at about how little progress, <laughs> how how we haven't quite come far enough yet, right? Because I think, again, you know, Zora grew up in this town where Black people decided they needed to build their own community with their own resources because white supremacy was strangling them, both literally and figuratively, right? So she would not be surprised to see that we live in a country where state violence perpetrated on Black people unfortunately continues to be a norm, right? She would not be surprised that Black people are in need of safe spaces in our homes, right? Because that is the world that she grew up in. And she grew up in a safe haven, a small safe haven within that world. So I think Zora would not be surprised about where we are. But I think she, at the same time, she would be surprised to see how far we've come. Because I'm thinking about the anthropological um, interest that Zora Neale Hurston had, right? So to me, it would be interesting, right? Um, if there If there's a young young writer, young, young individual who's interested in sort of doing that work now, like what, what that, what the story will be right in the next, next year, next five to 10 years. I I think it's, I think it'll be fascinating. Yes. Well, you know, it's like all of the stories that Zora literally collected both in her writing and her recordings, you know, all the songs that she collected you know, the way that she organized different types of folklore by geographical setting in Florida, you know, now I could see a young person doing that, anthropologist doing that on Instagram. (laughs) You know, it'd be like, okay, you know, or in SoundCloud, you know, who are the people that are making these songs at, you know, what place during what time over how long, right? How many... Um, hits and how many listens did they have with other people who are making music? You know, what was the dialogue between the beats that were sampled and the songs? You know, so I think that all of this work is still happening and it is, you know, ongoing. The platform 
for it has just, you know, radically changed. But the work itself, I think, is not so dissimilar. I think the one of the most wonderful things about Zora Neale Hurston that I think people don't know is that because Zora lived, we understand so much more about Black life in the 20th century. If Zora Neale Hurston hadn't lived, we wouldn't know the range of folk stories that Black people told. We wouldn't know about voodoo practices in Jamaica, in Haiti, in the kind of way that we do because Zora was there and wrote it down. So she was a real, a witness and a prophet to modes of life that don't exist anymore. So for that, as a Black person and as an American, I'm eternally grateful that she's helped me to understand more about the people I come from. Oh, that's amazing. So I wanted to to switch switch gears just a little bit. Um. For young people who are interested in writing or even, you know, older young people, right, who who are interested in writing historical fiction, I was wondering, is there any advice that you'd give give to someone about how how they would start the process? For you, is it an interesting person? Is it a small nugget of their life that you learned about? Like what what's your what would what's your way into character and developing story? Well, I think there are three things. There's events right? There's places and there are people. And I think if you are interested in historical fiction or you think you might be, I think you want to start with those three things. Like, is there a person I'm interested in finding out more about? Is there a place I'm interested in finding out more about? Or is there an event? Is there something that has happened that just really gets under my skin. You know, I think those are kind of three entry points to historical fiction. For me, as much as I love and have learned about Zora, I also, during this process, really fell in love with Eatonville, Florida, and the idea and existence of these Black communities that were, during the 20th century, you know, there are a range of cases You know, the Tulsa race riots of 1921, for example, is a case of what happened to an independent, thriving Black community. You know, there are many cases throughout, um, around Atlanta of highways and different roads being built through Black communities. So I think that that's a rich topic that I I wish more writers, more people would be interested in is that the history of black settlements in 20th century America, because there were a lot of them. And for good reason, because black people wanted to be safe. (laughs) And I don't think that that's acknowledged enough in our mainstream conversations about the history of race is that safety has been an issue for black people for 400 years. Black people have been trying to figure this out. They've been trying to crack this code. And in the 20th century, how a lot of black communities addressed it was by building communities that were separate. I don't think that that's necessarily the answer to the problem, so to speak, but I think it is worth looking at because we can learn about our people and also about the historical context in which we lived. Oh, that's, I mean, I mean, 
I think that's amazing. And for, you know, for whomever is listening and looking for that, you know, that next story, you know, you may have just given that to them, right? Because there's so, there's so many things to, to kind of look into that, right? Because there's also the history of redlining, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like self-imposed um, housing segregation, right? As opposed to, you know, an, an individual or group of individuals having the agency to be able to determine their own fate, right? As opposed to someone imposing a fate onto them. Right. So yeah, that's great. God, it's deep. It's deep, right? Zora is a is like a is a is a wealth of you know it's a treasure chest, right? In terms of her story and where she's grown up, I think is a treasure tre- treasure chest, right? So it's both the place, the person, and event mm-hmm. all all wrapped up there. So that's amazing. Now I, I, I'm always curious because I think you know authors authors of a certain certain um, time period, mm-hmm. and I'm. And I and at last like the last time I spoke with a poet, they were very much influenced by music, specifically hip hop. Mm-hmm. And you talked about Zora Neale Hurston, and there's been some, especially with the Harlem Renaissance, right? I think music was very much of that time, right? So probably also influenced her her work. And as a poet and writer, does music influence um, your writing? Or especially when you're writing, you know, writing about an historical time period, are you listening to that music as well to sort of to sort of help do that research um, for your writing? Oh, that's such a good question. I think while I'm writing, I don't listen to music. Um, one of the fun things about the Zora books is that I've been able to set some kind of set some lyrics to songs. So of course there's no music, but I'm imagining beats and rhythms for, um, for example, Zora's father has a sermon in the third book. While I was writing it, I set it to a beat. Um, there are some other like little poems and ditties in the first book because the first book is about the murder of a singer. So I had a lot of fun writing his lyrics and kind of setting them to music while I was writing. I don't know if that same music (laughs) translates to the readers. So there's that. I think also in terms of music and writing, because I grew up in the late 80s and then really came of age was a teenager in the 90s, in the late 90s. The music that I keep in my mind, the lyrics that go around in my head are actually like a lot of TLC. You know, I find, I think Missy Elliott, for example, is like our, our Bessie Smith. Um, I also really love Aaliyah. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, there's some, you know, and this, I, I feel a little bit silly for, you know, like admitting this, but, you know, sometimes, and I guess this is where the, the poetry kind of comes in, in trying to write a paragraph, you know, especially if it's one with like a lot of attitude, you know, I would sometimes think like when Beyonce was with Destiny's Child, especially, she would sing so fast that it would kind of be a rap. So sometimes when I would be reading, going over a paragraph, I would say, like, does this really work? So I would try to read it in like a, a Beyonce at a Beyonce singing speed <laughs> to try to make sure that it just really had, you know, rhythm and 
could work for the reader in that way. So I think the music of my early teens, late adult or early adulthood, late teens has influenced how I write in that kind of in a poetic sense. So are there any um, current works or, you know, new projects that you can share? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm all in on historical fiction. I'm all in on black girls. Um, I spent a lot of time in Florida writing the Zora and Me trilogy and I'm from New Jersey and I've decided to write a piece of historical fiction about a black girl, but in New Jersey, um, I find the, the history of the North in the late 19th, early 20th century is one that I don't think um, many readers and many teachers spend a lot of time exploring in terms of racial dynamics. And I've been really fascinated by it. So I guess to kind of take my own advice about character, event, and place, I've been looking into the the history of New Jersey and I've been figuring out a new story from there. Oh man, it sounds exciting. So I actually, again, I spent some time in New Jersey. I went to, went to um, college and grad school in New Jersey. Wow. So have a, have a Jersey connection. And I also have a connection with Zora Neale Hurston. I was born and raised in Washington, DC. So yeah, it all comes together. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly does. So Victoria, how can um, listeners learn more about you and your um, your books and all the things, all the upcoming coming projects you're working on? You can visit victoriabondauthor.com. Um, I also, um, for better or for worse, I'm always on Instagram <laughs> at way to go Vicky Bond and Vicky is spelled V-I-C-K-Y. So on Instagram at way to go Vicky Bond and my website is victoriabondauthor.com. It was a pleasure speaking with you today, Victoria. Oh, thank you so much. Really, it, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to What is Black Podcast. To listen to other great episodes, please subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and so much more. To sign up for our newsletter, go to www.whatisblack.co. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at What is Black. That's at W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-K.